0: Welcome to Fringe Pop 321 the show that believes the world is stranger than we think, but thinking should not be strange. Imagine you're in your bed. You've woken up for some reason. Your eyes are open. You're awake. You're looking at the ceiling. You decide to roll over and change position, but then you discover that you can't. After another attempt, you realize that your body is entirely paralyzed. You're fully awake, but the only thing you can move is your eyes, and it's terrifying. You quickly scan the room and suddenly a shadowy figure enters your field of vision. It's coming toward you and you're unable to cry out for help and your heart begins to pound. You hear buzzing sounds, your body tingles with the sensation of some sort of electrical energy running through it. It becomes hard to breathe because it feels like there's something on your chest, there's pressure there, and you gasp for air. Now what I've just described is actually a fairly common experience for many people all over the world. Some sensation of waking up and not being able to move. But for a small percentage of the population, there's an added element. There are many people who claim to wake up or be taken to an alien spacecraft as sort of a climax to all of those things we just described. Their experiments are performed on them, often of a violent sexual nature. So that is entirely different. What in the world is going on? What I've just described in a very general sense with that added alien element is what's commonly known as alien abduction. And it was a pretty tame one at that. There are lots of details we could get into that would be pretty gory, pretty pretty painful in fact for a lot of people who may have experienced this sort of thing. It may surprise you though to discover that the phenomenon has been studied by medical and mental health professionals and other scholars for quite a long time. There are a lot of people who have invested a considerable amount of time and expertise into the subject that we commonly refer to as alien abduction. The question though is, are aliens really responsible? Are aliens, extraterrestrials, really abducting people from their rooms, from their homes, and then probing and raping them and doing other sorts of experiments on them? Or might there be some other explanation? Well, let's find out. Now, You're probably wondering how big of a deal really is this? How much of a problem is alien abduction syndrome? Well, according to a 1991 Roper poll, this was conducted by Bud Hopkins, who was a very famous abduction researcher, and Ron Westrom, who had a PhD in sociology and taught as a professor. 1.5% of the US population has had, according to their own testimony, an alien abduction experience. Historian David Jacobs puts the number at two percent of the population. Jacobs is a famous but also infamous abduction researcher. He was a historian, taught history at the University of Temple. Lastly, a late professor known as Stuart Apple estimated that the number of alien abductions might be as high as five to six percent of the population. Now, Appel was a psychologist by training. Again, he is a very familiar name to those who do UFO research, so he was pretty close to the subject, spent a lot of time in it, and interviewed a lot of people. Now, if you just do the math, let's just go from 1.5 percent all the way up to 6 percent, you're talking about 4 to 18 million people in the United States alone using A total population just to round off of 300 million. That's a lot of people. So the alien abduction syndrome is a lot more significant than we would think. When you actually do the math, the numbers are pretty high. Let's talk about the elements of the abduction narrative. What do alien abductees typically and routinely, repetitively say happens to them in this experience? Well, first there is, of course, the abduction. The abductee is rendered incapable of resisting, by some means, usually unknown, and taken to an alien craft. Second, there's the examination of the abductee. And this is often, as I said before, very invasive, and, in some cases violent, very sexual in nature. But the examination trauma can extend to psychological issues as well. Third, there are the abductors. Now, there are several varieties of these in abductee testimony. Mostly, they are small, gray-skinned beings with large heads, black eyes, small slit mouths, elongated fingers, maybe three or four fingers. Uh, That is a very typical description of who is doing the procedure. Next, there's the messaging. Abductors communicate with the abductees, we are told, telepathically. Abductees are told that they're special. They're chosen to help the aliens help us, help the whole human race. After the procedure, after the messaging, there is the return. The abductees are returned to Earth, at least, again, that's the way the story is told, occasionally in a different location from where they were allegedly taken, or with new injuries or disheveled clothing. Sometimes abductees are taken back to the same spot, but other times it's someplace new. Then there is a missing time element. Abductees frequently awake with no memory of the episode and they often cannot account for the time that has passed during the episode when they remember being conscious in a particular location and when they sort of come to or realize where they are. Lastly there is the aftermath. There's a positive and negative element to this. People who are traumatized with this type of experience uh, often recover the memories later on. So they could be very normal, normal lives, be high functioning, and then for some reason they sort of recover or have flashbacks or something like this. They recover, remember the experience. Oftentimes when that happens people will seek out professional help and they get hypnotically regressed and they remember more and more details. Typically that is a very negative experience. On the positive side, or at least to abductees, this is positive, the experience often becomes something mystical, something spiritual, like a divine encounter. Now several mental and medical health professionals again have studied this phenomenon, devoted really a considerable amount of their careers to it. There's little to no psychological pathology in what they report when they study abductees. In other words, abductees tend to be very normal, just people from every part of life, every profession, every educational level. Very normal, very very little pathology is reported when people actually bother to study abductees. Historians, scientists, and theologians have discovered this as well. Again, very normal people who have this amazing, uh, terrifying story to tell. You might imagine that people have proposed answers. What might be the explanation for this set of experiences and this narrative? Well, Let's take a look at some possibilities. The second explanation we need to talk about as far as the alien abduction syndrome is demonization. Now this is the explanation favored by many in the Christian community. Uh, There's some pretty obvious reasons for that and we want to go through them. First, given a worldview that includes the reality of the demonic, again we're talking about the Christian community here, the terrible trauma inflicted on people who experience what we call the alien abduction syndrome, that experience is certainly going to be viewed as sinister. So this is kind of an an understandable association that people would make with what happens to the victim, the person who's traumatized, and the details of it, connecting that to the demonic world. Secondly, the messaging that's associated with the abduction experience is also a pretty big deal. A lot of the content is opposed to Judeo-Christian doctrine, uh, really biblical teaching. And if you actually read the abduction literature, no other religion really seems to be targeted, uh, either the way or really at all, that Christian thinking is targeted by the messaging. This has been well chronicled by Bill Allner in his book UFO Cults and the New Millennium. Allner has devoted a lot of his academic experience, uh, his really his career, to this area. And so that book is highly recommended. But the idea of non-human intelligences that may be sort of masquerading as ET, and who are very sinister, who are not to be trusted, who have human harm as their intent, is not exclusively put forth by Christians. Now, the best example of this is John Keel's book, UFOs, Operation Trojan Horse. Keel became famous for this book and his book on the Mothman, and he attributes very clearly a demonic, sinister, backdrop to this whole thing related to alien abduction. and He will use those terms even as a non-Christian. Jacques Vallée is also noted for this in his book The Messengers of Deception. He has other books that really relate to this whole idea. Uh, Vallée has become kind of noteworthy again outside the Christian community for for being a person who looks at the data, looks at the messaging, and concludes that there's something evil. There's something sinister going on here. Now, he'll talk about the perpetrators of this uh, occasionally in demonic terms, but he'll talk about sort of alien intelligences or interdimensional beings, that sort of thing. But again, to the Christian ear, this sounds very familiar. It sounds very demonic. Now, as far as specific examples of messaging elements that are contrary to Judeo-Christian thinking in the Bible, Uh, Very quickly, you have the element of monism. This is the idea that all is one. Monism is a denial that there is a firm distinction between a creator and the creation. Everything is one. This makes sort of God either non-personal or part of the material world. It's very contrary to biblical thinking, but very common in abduction narratives and contactee narratives as well. There's a lot of moral relativism that goes into alien messaging reincarnation is a big theme. Uh, you might be thinking, well didn't, you know, didn't you know, Christians you know, in years gone by in the early church teach that? They actually did not, and that's a good uh, topic that we'll devote some attention to later in Fringe Pop. But that is not the case, and so for Christians who realize that, who sort of know the history of this discussion, when that element pops into the abduction narrative and the messaging, the flags go up right away. There's also the notion of personal godhood that's involved in alien messaging, that we really, you know, we humans really are God in, in some sense. We're divine. We have this innate divinity about us. So that's going to be a theological red flag. And along with that, this there's an idea of human divinization, that we are sort of on the path to becoming gods, uh, really in, in sort of a sense that We're going to be uh, beings that, you know, sort of get to live out in space and populate our own worlds and that sort of thing. We're going to be like them. We're going to be like the alien creature that we think is abducting us. Those are all, again, message elements that really drive a lot of people, especially in the Christian community, toward a demonic explanation. But there's actually another reason why the demonization view sort of gets a lot of momentum. And that is if you actually look at the abduction accounts and go through the literature go through the witness testimony they have a number of specific points of overlap especially the sexual elements with accounts of incubus and succubus in medieval literature these are demons that allegedly had sexual contact with humans the compendium for this sort of material in again the late middle ages the renaissance era is the Malaeus maleficarum 1487 If you read any of that, you're going to see very obvious points of overlap between what people describe in those experiences and alien abduction. Now, some listeners, their mind would go immediately to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God with the daughters of men, that sort of thing. That naturally, again, can be read, that passage can be read as sort of an alien encounter. I'm going to suggest that that isn't the best way to read the passage, but that becomes a component of the demonization view. Now, as far as a good resource for this, Demon Lovers is a book that has sort of collected the academic research into incubus, succubus accounts, also accounts of the, quote, old hag, that are again often sexual in nature. But this material has been collected uh, by Stevens in this work demon lovers and it really goes through a lot of the details and again if you read this literature this is academic literature Stevens is a scholar if you read the literature you're going to see very clearly that there are demonstrable specific points of overlap with the alien abduction story. Fourthly there are also indications that what happens to the abductee in this experience offers a considerable overlap with satanic ritual abuse testimony Now, in the 1992 MIT conference on alien abduction, and yes, we're talking about that MIT, they actually had a conference on alien abduction. In that conference, there were a number of scholars who gathered and presented research papers and talks on the whole issue of alien abduction. Those papers, the proceedings of the entire conference have been published. Now, the publication is called Alien Discussions. It is a collection, again, as I just noted, of all the papers. But there's one paper in particular in that book that's noteworthy. Gwen L. Dean, her paper on comparisons of abduction accounts with ritual maltreatment, is again sort of an astonishing read. We're not talking about three or four points of overlap with or between alien abduction accounts and satanic ritual abuse, it's a few dozen it's really kind of remarkable even sort of the clinical medical background to the examinations and whatnot. So when Christians look at this material they think well you know what else can we think this must be demonization. Lastly as far as again why this would be a sort of a dominant view within the Christian community there's the work of CE4 research group this is headed by Joe Jordan. Joe works with abductees and he has over 50 documented cases where the abduction experience and repetition of the experience, but either involving a person or a person and their extended family, other family members, that the experience has been stopped by appeal to Jesus Christ. So again, when you're a Christian and you come into contact with this topic, and you look at the panoply of what's going on, all of these issues, it's very understandable, very easy to gravitate toward the view that this is just nothing more than demonization. Now we need to evaluate the demonization view just like we evaluated the alien hypothesis. This view has some merit, but with certain qualifications. Now I personally know Joe Jordan, I know the work of the CE4 research group. Joe is a good guy, he's honest, and I have met some of the abductees that he works with, and I can validate their stories about their experiences calling on the name of the Lord, to stop the abduction experience. So I know that for a good number of people, again in his case that he works with, this really works, this helps, this is the solution to the abduction experience and so in those cases that really contributes to the notion that we might have a demonization issue here. Nevertheless, the approach, again the answer, the suggestion has some of the same problems as kind of other things that Christians sort of get involved in with the supernatural, such as deliverance ministry, and that is, it doesn't always work. You would think, you know, why would appealing to Jesus, why would Jesus say no to a particular person and allow an abduction experience to continue? So the fact that it doesn't always work, it's not just like flipping a switch. We pray a prayer and the abduction experience goes away. That also is not true. There are people who, again, have prayed, do this, again, work with Joe. Joe works with them and other Christians, again, who this you know, are really oriented by this approach, and it doesn't always work. So I would suggest to you, well, maybe in the cases where it doesn't always work, maybe the cause is not demonization. Now, I would still say, though, that we need to keep it on the table because we have a supernatural view, at least I do. I'm not a materialist. So I think it's one of several possible explanations. I should add, before we move on to our next possibility that in relation to Genesis 6 1 through 4 again as a biblical scholar uh, I know that this can be read this passage about the sons of God can be read to sort of reinforce the demonization view of alien abduction uh, I don't think that's the right way to read the passage we don't really have uh, anything specific in in terms of excru- you know, excruciating precise detail that matches or aligns with what's going on in an abduction experience again they're not taken anywhere the women you know who are in the passage aren't taken to a spaceship we don't they don't have experiments done on them there's a lot of disconnections if you really think about it between what's going on in Genesis 6 1 through 4 and how that passage filters down into other passages in biblical theology and the alien abduction experience so it's not a precise fit so personally even though this is on the table for me I think Genesis 6 1 through 4 is talking about something altogether different. Lastly I would say with the demonization view there are also disconnects with the medieval sources or at least things that we need to think about and again evaluate because we, we need to be honest with the data. We can't really assume that medieval folks would be aware of other options. In other words if you were a person living in the Middle Ages you had this particular thing happen to you what else would you think? Well there isn't really too much else you could think Uh, you're gonna go with a demonic presence. Nowadays there are other explanations that are out there that in many cases do make good sense. So just because we have a correlation with abduction narratives and medieval demonization literature, that really doesn't satisfy completely uh, the sort of answer, the sort of framework we need to really process the alien abduction experience the way it could be. There are other views there are other cases. So we can't really conclude, even though we have good reason to at least put demonization on the table, we can't conclude that that is the answer. There are other things to think about and that's what we're going to do as we proceed. If you think back to the abduction experience that we described at the beginning of our episode, that was a textbook example of sleep paralysis. Of course we added an alien element to it. Now research into sleep paralysis, especially the most recent research, has made it the leading explanation of alien abduction reports among the majority of people who are interested in this subject. For instance, Ann Cox in her article Sleep Paralysis and Folklore estimates that roughly 40 percent of the population has experienced some sort of paralysis event during sleep. Now, that is a very large number and so it has some explanatory power just in terms of the numbers. But sleep paralysis actually has a surprisingly high correlation with narrative elements in the alien abduction experience. That might sound a little odd because when we presented the sleep paralysis episode I noted that for a small percentage of people they have this added element of the alien. Well sleep paralysis research actually does account for that. Scholars and researchers have found that when they induce sleep paralysis in a laboratory situation, people actually do see things along with the paralysis event. And some have even used words like alien and extraterrestrials in what they report. So, we have in sleep paralysis something that feels fairly comprehensive uh, for many researchers in how to explain these things. You have the supernatural entities, you have the pressure on the chest, You have sort of touching and probing sensations you have that tingling sensation going on you have a number of elements that abductees report surprisingly as well you get even more details a sensation of being lifted off the bed levitation that sort of thing that's important when sleep paralysis uh, sufferers report this because that would account in the mind of many researchers for the sensation of leaving a room, being taken out of the room, being taken off the bed. That is, again, a stock element of sleep paralysis, at least for many sufferers. Even out-of-body experiences have been reported during sleep paralysis research and even in instances where it's been induced. So what we have in sleep paralysis in the mind of many is sort of a comprehensive answer to what people might think is an alien abduction, an alien coming into their room and taking them out of the room and doing things to them. You actually can account for the elements with this view, but we need to take a little bit more of a look at it to really see why it's been so attractive recently. Now I alluded to the fact that the cause of sleep paralysis has been discovered and reproduced in controlled conditions. According to a study published in the Journal of Neuroscience, about the identification of the transmitter and receptor mechanisms responsible for REM REM sleep paralysis. During REM sleep, the CNS, that's the central nervous system, is intensely active, but the skeletal motor system is paradoxically forced into a state of muscle paralysis. The mechanisms that trigger REM sleep paralysis are a matter of intense debate. Here, in this paper, we identify the transmitter and receptor mechanisms that function to silence skeletal muscles during REM REM sleep. Another article notes that muscle atonia, that is, the loss of muscle tone, is a feature of rapid eye movement REM sleep. If a person is simultaneously awake and in REM sleep, muscle atonia is experienced as sleep paralysis. In other words, the person is awake but unable to move voluntarily. Recent studies now indicate that glycine and another neurotransmitter gamma-aminobutyric acid GABA are simultaneously needed to induce muscle atonia to REM sleep. This is a natural neurochemical explanation for sleep paralysis and more importantly the things that therefore go with sleep paralysis. In other words, if you have sleep paralysis, you are going to, at least many of the sufferers of sleep paralysis, are going to have some of the elements that are sort of the classic alien abduction scenario. And so many researchers look at this, uh, even including seeing shadow people, the sensation of being lifted off the bed, the sensation of having an out-of-body experience, leaving the room, since the causes for that in many people are known again this neurochemical explanation most researchers would say look this is the explanation for alien abduction it is literally happening in a person's head because of neurochemical transmitters things going on with the the chemistry right there Now that doesn't minimize the fear because that's very real the hallucinations the sensations that this produces, even if it's entirely a neurochemical solution to this, an answer, it doesn't minimize how people feel about what they experience. And so we shouldn't take work on sleep paralysis, at least those who opt for this explanation, as being sort of a dismissal of the experience. It really isn't. If you read the literature, you find out pretty quickly that the experience itself is taken quite seriously. And people want to find a good explanation for this so that they can tell people, look, this is actually, again, a natural thing that happens in your body. So we don't have aliens in this explanation. We also don't have demons. We have, again, under lab conditions, very specific neurochemical explanations for what's going on. We don't need demons, again, to be coming into the room and you know, having sexual experiences with a person or, of course, extraterrestrials. So sleep paralysis has become a major contender for how to understand and explain the alien abduction phenomenon. The third approach to answering what in the world's going on with alien abduction might sound as bizarre as the alien explanation and that is mind control and dissociation. Now what we're talking about here is people who are deliberately traumatized in some way or We use a word like programmed in some way or given a memory, in this case of an alien abduction, uh, intentionally by someone else. This view really takes us into government programming, for lack of a better term. The government actually has a long history of both its own involvement and its interaction with private research involving what is often called mind control. And that isn't a pejorative term that people use uh, to sort of dig at the government. This is terminology that you would find actually in government documentation itself. These are things like drugs, shock treatments, and again other things that I think we could rightly call abuse, done to people, in some cases knowingly, but in many cases without their knowledge, to induce certain things, induce certain memories, or to program them to do certain things. The most public example of this is MKUltra. This was exposed in 1973 in the church hearings. Uh, MKUltra is actually a a pretty big deal and we will have to devote some serious time to it in future episodes of Fringe Pop. But for now, if you wanted to sort of catch up on MKUltra and the history of our government uh, in these sorts of areas, I recommend the book Brainwash and also the book Mind Wars. Both of these books chronicle the government's involvement in this sort of human experimentation relating to the ability to infect, inflict, change, and program someone's memory. Now, in N.K. Ultra's case, that one, because of the church hearings, is a little more commonly known. Nowadays, the movie Split would probably take you into familiar territory. But this is deliberate trauma, deliberately doing something to a person to give them a specific memory or that causes the sort of outgrowth of a specific memory. Now in the case of many trauma victims, this is a natural brain function. They're traumatized and their brain sort of splits them off. It takes them to a different place. This is what used to be called multiple personality disorder. What we're talking about here more seriously is experimentation done on people specifically to create that and that's what makes it really deeply sinister it's very possible that in this process again just human experimentation that this was done to certain people and memories of an alien abduction were actually implanted into a person in other words it never really happened but it was given to a person this work goes well back into the 1950s and on you know into even modern day now with respect to modern times for now, this is on the table in part because not just that MKUltra is a known phenomenon, but it's also on the table because there are specific researchers in this area that have managed to create find a correlation between people who were involved in these programs in government, this is actual government documentation, whose names also show up very curiously in alien abduction literature, and in some cases, even testimony of abductees. The fact that that correlation even happens is very suggested to some people that we might have something deliberate going on here with certain individuals, and for their cases, it would explain their abduction memory. Now there are a couple important researchers for this particular perspective on what might be the explanation for the alien abduction phenomenon. And the researchers here include one high-profile abductee, herself, whose research was once totally focused on the alien hypothesis, but she has since done a 180 on it. She doesn't buy the alien view anymore. The first I'll mention here is Jack Brewer's book again, I mentioned this earlier in the episode, Brewer not only has collected a lot of material on the problems of memory retrieval, which is why we mentioned him earlier, but he has also collected a lot of data specifically that connects alien abduction research with mind control programs. Again, people, places, techniques that intersect and appear in the research and also the testimony in both areas. And again, that really can't be a coincidence. The abduction researcher that I mentioned earlier, alluded to, is Leah Haley. Leah Haley's work is again of special interest because she was an abductee. Her book, Unlocking Alien Closets, more or less tells her story. She has had a long history of defending the alien view. Of course, she herself uh, was one of the victims here. But she has since rejected this idea. Haley has moved to this option, human experimentation, mind control, dissociation, deliberate implantation of memory. And she actually moves over to that position in her specific case. We're going to deal with Leah Haley very specifically in a later episode of Fringe Pop because her case is very important. And we'll go through the very specific points of correlation that have really moved Leah to reject the alien view and move over to this view. But for now, it's sufficient just to mention her and again remind us that mental health professionals and scholars have found significant points of correlation with all of this. In the academic literature, not just Jack Brewer's book, Leah Haley's book, essentially her testimony, but in the academic professional literature, these associations have also been made. For instance, Susan Marie Powers, her article, Dissociation in Alleged Extraterrestrial Abductees. This was published in Dissociation Progress in the Dissociative Disorders, part of that book in 1994. Powers also contributed this article, Alien Abduction Narratives, in the book Broken Images, Broken Selves Dissociative Narratives in Clinical Practice. That was 1997. Elizabeth Loftus is a very familiar, very uh, famous, I think it's fair to say, uh, researcher on memory and these sorts of topics, and she herself has contributed to the alien abduction discussion in her essay of the malleability of memory, planting misinformation in the human mind, a 30-year investigation. This was published in the journal Learning and Memory in 2005. Now this is serious academic research that, I'll admit, this option sounds a little bizarre. Mind control, dissociation, deliberate implantation of memory, but it really needs to be on the table because of the academic research, the time, uh, in Loftus's case, 30 years, that's really been put into this. These correlations do exist, and so this gives us another option besides aliens and demons for what might be going on with some people in relationship to their experience of alien abduction. I think we can all tell that the subject of alien abduction is a pretty complicated one. But what we might not have known before viewing this episode anyway is a lot of academics, a lot of professionals have paid attention to this to try to come up with an answer. And we've laid out the options on the table for you, and I think if you go to the website and check out the resources for this episode you're going to find a lot of fascinating information, again, that isn't just something peripheral, it isn't just something that people are doing this as a hobby. These are mental and medical health professionals, researchers, theologians, historians. It runs the gamut. There's a lot of serious literature on the alien abduction phenomenon, and there's really quite more than one way to look at it. So thanks for watching. Please come back for our next episode, because what you know may not be so. Exercising demons, casting demons out is not clear at all. There is no nothing in the Old Testament, at least to surface reading that is about this. So where in the world would, would they get this idea? Why would people uh, living you know during the experiences of, of you know the incarnation, Jesus first advent, when he's going around casting out demons, why would they just look at that and say, well, of course, you know, this is the son of David, this is what the son of David's supposed to do. Where would they get this idea? What preconditioned them to expecting that this was going to happen? What preconditioned them to the, to the fact that once they saw somebody do this, they said, aha, you know, we have here the Son of David, the Messiah. What, what was it that led them to that point where they could process what was going on uh, correctly? So that's what we want to talk about. And we really have to begin, surprisingly enough, in the Old Testament. And, and this is going to be some obscure stuff. But I'm going to quote one passage in the Old Testament, then I'm going to quote it in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Again, that a lot of people, a lot of Jews, Jews or Gentiles, would have been familiar with. I mean, mostly Jews before we have the first advent because... You know, if you're a Gentile, you don't really have any interest in reading stuff that Jews wrote. I mean, if you're an intellectual, you might, but the, again, the masses don't. When Gentiles start becoming converted after you know the resurrection or the, the ministry of the apostles, well, then you get a lot of Gentiles reading the Septuagint because, hey, that's, that, that's your Bible. You know, this is, this is where the, the Messiah was presented. Well, prior to that. Again, you, you do have something in the Septuagint that the Jewish community, because they're the ones who are going to be reading this, either in Hebrew or the Targums, Aramaic, or in this case, the Septuagint, they're going to be familiar with this idea. And So I'm going to, I'm going to start the passage from 1 Kings 4, and I'm going to read it, both versions, and then we're going to go into the Dead Sea Scrolls and talk about extra psalms <laughs> that are in the Dead Sea Scrolls, at least one of which actually shows up in the Septuagint. So again, people would have been familiar with the material. So prepping it that way, here we go. In 1 Kings 4, 29-34, the Masoretic text, and again the traditional Masoretic text, reads as follows, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of of Egypt. Skip into verse 32, he, Solomon, also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also beasts and birds and reptiles, fish, so on and so forth. So that's 1 Kings 4, 29 through roughly you know 33, right around there. So we have the mention of Solomon. Solomon is obviously son of David, king. Okay, he's he's gonna be a messianic figure in, in, in that sense. And we have here the information that he spoke three thousand Proverbs and his songs were one thousand five. Big deal. You know, I mean how how do you get casting out demons from that? Well you don't, but it begins sort of a journey that that, you know, is initiated in what's said here about Solomon that will get picked up in other material. In the Septuagint, it's slightly different. Okay, the difference here is in verse thirty two. And Solomon spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were five thousand. So there's a lot more songs in the Septuagint version than there is than there are in the Masoretic text version. And that's because, as we move to the Dead Sea Scroll material, that's because the Jewish community, and of course the community that would have that's part of the community that would have produced the Septuagint, knew of lots of other psalms and we're going to focus on one of those that shows up in the dead sea scroll material that is actually not only interesting but references and here's the key thought it the, the scroll's material references what we just read in first kings 4 about the songs and the i'm going to use a very suggestive word here the utterances of solomon okay so this is 11q Okay, 11Q Psalm Scroll, and the abbreviation is AP superscript A. In in Numbers, it's 11Q 5, column 27. For those of you who have Dead Sea Scroll stuff, you can go look this up, but I'm going to read you parts of it. So this is a, a psalm about David. So we read here at the beginning, this is line two, David, son of Jesse, was wise and a light like the light of the sun, and learned and perfect in all his paths before God and men. And then we have a blank. And the Lord Yahweh gave him a discerning and enlightened spirit. And he wrote psalms, 3,600, and songs to be sung before the altar over the perpetual. And then there's a gap in the text. Line nine. And all the songs which he spoke were 446. And songs to perform over the possessed, (laughs) four of them. So you actually have a reference in this extra psalm to David, okay, David composing songs to perform over the possessed. The total, again, of all of this was 4,050. Again, the, the total of his his total output. When you get down to, to that particular line, line 10 in, in that Dead Sea Scroll text. Now, the word translated possessed is more literally uh, someone who has been assaulted. Uh, someone who has been you know, accosted, again, the implication is by you know, some external force. But it's just an odd line. Songs to perform over the possessed or over the assaulted, four of them. And the last line here, And all these he spoke through the spirit of prophecy, which had been given to him from before the Most High. So God gave him these things to, these songs to sing, uh, so on and so forth. Now in the same Dead Sea Scroll, in a different column, column nineteen, line fifteen, we read this where David says, "Let not Satan rule over me, nor an evil spirit, let neither pain nor evil purpose again conquer me now part of that that line, part of you know this this little this these snippets that I've read, part of this material shows up in the Septuagint as what the Septuagint calls psalm one fifty one now, if you know your your Bible, if you know the Book of Psalms, there's only a hundred and I think there's 150 Psalms here, and you know you've got this extra Psalm. You know, we we okay. Hey, you know, the Masoretic text. You know, we've we've got this nice you know neat number here. Where in the world do we get this extra Psalm? Well, there were. If you think about the Psalms, let's, let's just do this a little bit. There are references in the Psalms to the Psalms of David and, and others, not just. David, but we're going to zero in on David here. The Psalms of David being collected. And this again, this was the process. They were collected and put into the books, so that in the Masoretic text, we have 150 total. And there are even places in the Psalms where it says, and these are the, this is the end of the Psalms of David, son of Jesse. But then afterwards, you get more Psalms of David. And that's because the collecting kept going. So at one point, you know they had a collection, Psalms of David, and then an, an editor, you know, who was putting the, all this stuff together into the book that we know as Psalms. An editor says, "Hey, these are the Psalms of David, the songs of David, uh, and and this is this is all all that we have." But then they find more, and those get added subsequently to those editorial comments in the uh, in, in the Book of Psalms as we have it today. Now, I mention that because here we have a 151st Psalm that actually winds up in. Dead Sea Scrolls and Dead Sea Scroll material, and it was added to the collection that becomes part of the Septuagint. So, in the in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, if you turn to the Book of Psalms, you're going to have an extra one. You're going to have Psalm one fifty-one, and in that Psalm, you get again some of this this material about don't let Satan rule over me or an evil spirit, of course. The implications are because of what you know. David had written, you know, s- songs to perform over the possessed. You know, that he has power uh, to deliver people from being bound by demons. Now, let's go to another one. Psalm ninety-one. This is Psalm ninety-one, which again you have your traditional version. Okay, that you would read in most translations translating the Masoretic text. You have a version of this that comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Psalm 91 at Qumran. Again, and not coincidentally, it is part of this same scroll, the 11Q psalm scroll that I've been quoting already. And then of course you also have a version of this in what becomes known as the Septuagint. Now I'm going to read you this. There are four things in here that are very interesting that speak to this issue. And for those of you who remember the uh, the Fern and Audrey episode, Fern and Audrian and I have, have discussed some elements of this particular psalm because of the work they do. Uh, again, they don't do renunciation prayers or anything like that. They, they're they not deliverance ministry. What they do is different, but they have used the material in this psalm and some other things to help them do what they do. And I think you'll understand why that's relevant as we read through this. So I'm just going to go. You know, we'll pick you know one of the versions because I'm going to actually link out to a few things and then talk about where it might be different. But we read here Psalm one, Psalm ninety one. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Okay, now look at the reference. We already had had Psalm one fifty one. Again, don't let Satan rule over me. We already had a portion of of an extra uh, you know extra Psalm material that had songs about dealing with possessed people. And there was a reference made to, hey, David wrote these things through power given to him from the Most High. And here we have the Most High referenced in Psalm 91. Now, again, if you've read anything in the unseen realm, you know that this is important terminology. Because the Most High, again, this is the title given to the God of Israel. When he divides up the nations. Again, it, it it's a title of superiority. He is the most high. He is the one uh, you know who made this decision, you know, who he who judges, you know, the rebellious, you know, divine beings of Genesis six, who who, who dealt with the Nakash of Genesis three. Again, you have this most high terminology. And that's that's important because you have to assert authority. You have to presume and assert and, and actually legitimately have authority over other Elohim, over other divine beings, again, to to do what you're going to do, to to do what needs to be done. And so there's this, again, conceptual link back to, we're doing this because of the Most High and His power, but the Messiah, Son son of David, was again, you know, Jesus is actually called Son of the Most High in the Gospels. And that is a messianic title because the King of Israel, again, the King from the line of David, is referred to as the Son of God in the old testament. So again there's this linkage about the, the the messianic figure son of david, you know, son of solomon, line of david and solomon, son of the most high, son of god, all this sort of stuff factoring into what This psalm, and again, what Jesus actually does in the Gospels with demonic entities. So he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Now here we get hit verses 5 and 6. We're going to get some lines in here that, it's very easy to read right over, but we're going to be linking out to some things and talking about them. You will not fear the terror of the night. Hear the terror of the night. In Old Testament thinking, this was actually a demonic entity. Now, if you have the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, again, I've recommended that that source many, many times. This term is discussed. There's actually an entry for the terror of the night in DDD. And the the Hebrew for this is Pakad Lila. Okay, you now Lila is the important thing to sort of fix in your brain. Lila, the way that sounds, because to quote the article, there have been some attempts to relate Lila etymologically to Lilith, which is referenced in Isaiah thirty-four fourteen. This is Lilith again, the, which is a demonic figure in in uh, Jewish tradition. But the entry continues. Akkadian Lili is actually a better choice. Akkadian Lili was a night demon. So Lili, Lila, it's different than Lilit. It's close, but it's not quite the same. But this term, Pakad Lila, DDD suggests, you know, there might be some relationship here. They say this is a, a folk etymology. Functionally, however, the demon Pakad Lila reveals traits similar to those of the Mesopotamian lilu and the lili, especially as it's referenced in the Song of Solomon 3.8, uh, which talks about, again, the, the, the terror of the night. We're not going to necessarily go there. But you get this idea that there's an Akkadian term that aligns with this one that has characteristics that would sort of fit with, again, a, a demonic figure, terror of the night. Now, the terror of the night demon in Mesopotamia, was again an aggressive attacking entity and the night association is significant because that's when lots of you know people sort of thought about when you know when demons are doing something and it also has reference to what happens at night specifically in bed between men and women okay the, there's the marital bed uh, also again ch- the, the the care of children during the night while they're asleep because the the, the demons associated with this were were often associated with children dying during the night and 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 whatnot, or trying to prevent conception. Again, there's this again, there's this notion of of demonic activity during the the midnight hours. I guess you could put it. And this term is associated with that. And I want to read you a little bit more from the DDD entry. He says the writer says among the host of Mesopotamian demons. Lilu, which is related to Sumerian lu lilah, which literally means wind man, so it's like a, a spirit man among the host of Mesopotamian demons. Lilu and lilitu or lili most resemble the biblical pakad lilah. These demons seem to have been attached particularly to pregnant women and newborns, whom they sought to harm. Uh, They are conceived as harmful to brides and grooms whom they attack on their wedding night and prevent the consummation of the marriage. As an attacker of brides and grooms, Lilu, or especially in Jewish tradition, Lilit, comes close, now catch this line, comes close to the incubus and succubus demons known from all over the world. Again, just giving you a little bit little bit of a flavor of what's going on here again this i don't want to drift off into you know facade territory or alien abduction stuff but but thematically there's a lot of overlap here between uh you know like and sleep paralysis even though i think sleep paralysis is just a biological medical condition, but you know it's often associated with feeling like a presence in the room but again you, you you get these sorts of things I'm just trying to pluck examples out so that you get a feel for what this term in antiquity would have been uh, used to describe or or Uh, how this term would have been uh, brought into discussion based upon some experience somebody had, whether it was supernatural or or, or something that just freaked them out. That might have been natural or not. So this, this is the terminology that's going on in this particular psalm, back to the terror of the night in Psalm 91. A cursory look, last line from DDD, a cursory look at the context in which Pakad Lila occurs in Psalm 91 reveals its demonic identity. This psalm abounds with names of other demons. And it does. Let's go back to Psalm 91, verse 5. We read, You shall not fear the terror of the night. Here's the next one. Nor the arrow that flies by day. And you say, well, isn't that just like an arrow? I don't want to get stuck with an arrow that somebody shot off. Well, again, there's a little bit more to it than that, especially if you are reading this psalm in the Septuagint. Because in the Septuagint, instead of arrow that flies by day, you actually get daimonion mesame brinon, which means midday demon. (laughs) Okay, So you will not feel the, the terror of the night, the nighttime demons, and you won't, Fear the midday demons, either, in the Septuagint. Now, DDD also has a reference to this. I'll read you a few excerpts. The midday demon is found in the Septuagint version of Psalm 91. In that case, it's verse 6. English Bibles, it's going to be verse 5. In these verses, the Hebrew psalmist declares that the one who takes refuge in the Almighty will not fear. Again, Masoretic text, terror, the night or the air that flies by day. And then it continues to the pestilence and the destruction. And We're going to get to those in a moment. Those are also names of gods in antiquity, in Canaanite religion. And they're referred, those gods are referred to as demons in the Septuagint. But just hold that thought for a moment. So back to the entry for midday demon. Again, this is the Septuagint version. The Septuagint translators, continuing with the entry, confronted a different Hebrew text, and then he references probably the same ones that Aquila and Symmachus used. Uh, and then he gives, he gets into the Hebrew for what they probably read, destruction and demon of noontime, again, according to the, the Hebrew text they probably had, which the Septuagint renders as misfortune and the midday demon. So it's very clear in the Septuagint. That what they are reading, and, and again, D.D. says they probably, you know, had a text that actually led them this direction. A Hebrew text is a little bit different than the Masoretic text, but in this verse, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the psalmist is saying, you know, you, you won't, if, you, if you're under the shelter of the Most High, the one who's really in charge of, again, all these other entities, you will not fear the terror of the night the nighttime demon. You will not fear, again, the midday demon, the one that shows up, you know, in the middle of the day, that that sort of thing. You won't need to fear these things. Now, before we leave this, if you go with the Masoretic text, the arrow that flies by day, there are scholars who would actually argue, and with I think this is a reasonable argument, that the reference to the arrow provides a clue, actually, to a demonic entity, because... In Canaanite religion, the god Reshef, who was a plague god, is represented as an archer, someone who shoots arrows. And so that again, that might have contributed. That knowledge in, in antiquity might have contributed to the, the Septuagint translator when he's looking at what he looks at and he has different options. It might have led him to say, "Okay, we got it. Midday demon. You know, this we we get it because of this this." the way Reshef, again, was depicted, described in Canaanite literature. So even if you want to go with MT, you don't like Septuagint, you can still be dealing with a demonic entity here. And Reshef, again, was, was it was a deity, was a god in, in Canaanite religion. Continuing on to the next verse, so you won't feel the terror of the night, you won't, you know, need to fear the either the arrow again, the, the reshefs, darts. Remember, you know what Paul talks about the fiery darts. You know the wicked. It's the same idea, but here in the Old Testament, that here you have a, a deity associated with this, uh, represented as an archer shooting at his victims, that sort of thing. Uh, or if you go with the Septuagint, the midday demon. We continue. Nor will you have to fear the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. Now say. So, uh, catch what what the psalmist just did there the previous verse we have terror of the night nighttime demon and then we have a daytime demon next verse we have a pet, the pestilence that's stalking in the darkness and there we go with nighttime nor the destruction that wastes at noonday here we have noonday at reference again so you could take verses 5 and 6 as parallel to each other it's another way again instead of that instead of it yielding 4 Demonic figures. It would only be two demonic figures described two times in different ways. Either way, these, these are these are hostile divine entities, hostile gods in Canaanite literature that are again viewed as the forces of darkness, spiritual forces of darkness. That the psalmist is saying, you don't need to fear these things. Now let's talk about pestilence a little bit. This term, and this is something that you know shows up in a footnote somewhere in unseen realm. I know. I don't quite remember what the chapter was, but the Hebrew word here is Dever. Again, pestilence is, is a normal translation, but the thing to notice here, to be aware of, is that this Dever okay, is a deity name in the Ugaritic texts, and he is the god, a god, of destruction. Now again, Dever in Ugaritic text is also mentioned in concert with, in tandem with, Reshef. That was the arrow demon, the archer demon that we just read about in the previous verse. So again, this this is what that, that quote in DDD much earlier said, hey, the context of Psalm 91 supports this demonic thinking because look at all these terms in the psalm that point to demonic entities. See that, that was an accurate quote. There there are, there are a number of things in the psalm that point that direction. Uh, Dever is also mentioned in Habakkuk 3. Uh, again, we have their might as well just go out to Habakkuk 3, where Dever and Reshef are actually in this scene. We have here, I'll just start at the beginning. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. So there you have Dever and Reshef mentioned in this. And in this scene, they are sort of like cringing, you know, servants, their underlings, of the God of Israel. Again, this, this the the prayer of Habakkuk here puts them in their place. So they're not you know independent you know more powerful entities or anything like that. uh you know the God of Israel can use destruction and he can use pestilence and that that sort of thing it, but what you get is you get in Canaanite religion, these are distinct deities and they're in opposition of course to what's going on in israel and in the psalm, you know they become enemies, they become rebels, they become threats you know to to the to God's people, and that's why we have this psalm that you don't need to fear these entities because the God of Israel is more powerful than they are. And in fact, again, the the, the supposition is that the Most High can and will deliver you uh, from these things. So let's go to, again quickly, the other reference, the destruction reference. This is not Reshef, this is Ketev. The term Ketev appears four times in the Old Testament, D. again. Its basic significance is destruction. In Ugaritic, this name would be pronounced And it occurs once in Ugaritic, and Kezev is a buddy or kinsman of Mot, the god of death, uh, in Ugaritic thinking. And in Hosea 13.14, we get a reference to this this kind of material. This is going to sound like a familiar passage, but think about this passage and think about where it's referenced in the New Testament. Hosea says, Again, and and the speaker here is, um, let me get the context here for the speaker, Hosea 13. Uh, It is the prophet. He's talking about, he destroys you, O Israel. Again, Hosea basically giving Israel bad news for their idolatry. And then we get to verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Again, the realm of the dead. Shall I redeem them from death? The word mote. O death, O mote, where are your plagues? And the the word there is Dever. O Sheol, where is your sting? The word there is ketev. Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now, where do we see that quoted in the New Testament? O death, okay, where is your sting? Okay, all that sort of thing. We get it in 1 Corinthians 15.55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And it's a passage about the resurrection. Okay, Because the resurrected Messiah... And the resurrection itself conquers death, conquers Sheol, conquers the, the plagues that you know people get that send them to the underworld. You know, It conquers the destruction, again, that results in people dying and all this sort of stuff. It's a reference to, again, the, the, the power of the God of Israel over these forces, these entities, these things, and ultimately even the power of death. Well, that's important because all of those things, the resurrection, is tied to the Messiah. Okay, this was this was the plan of salvation. The Messiah needs to die and rise again to again complete to really bring in, bring into effect, uh, kickstart, bring to, to fruition the whole plan of salvation, salvation history in the Old Testament. And the Messiah is the son of David. The Messiah is the son of Solomon. Okay, the, again the Davidic line. All of these ideas again are interconnected in the Old Testament mind in in as part of the messianic profile. The Messiah will have power over the terror of the night. The Messiah will have power over the terror of the day. Again, nighttime demon, daytime demon. The Messiah will have power over pestilence, dever, destruction, ketav. Both of them are buddies of moat, death. In Hosea 13:14, the Messiah will have the power over. Now, catch what I'm saying here. Again, if you've read the unseen realm, this is going to click with you pretty, pretty easily. The, the Messiah has the power over the realm of death the lord of the dead who is satan and everybody who works for him okay the minions in the in the realm of the dead who are in the old testament context they're described by these god terms these these pseudo lesser hostile god terms in the septuagint this terminology is going to be put into d- demonic terms and in the new testament in greek it, it, all of this is going to be going to be put under demonic terms because this is where the demons dwell. Yes, the demons in the in the gospels, demons in the New Testament are the spirits of the dead Nephilim. We get that. Again, we're not going to go over all that that ground in, in this podcast episode, but this is where they live. Okay. Even in the Old Testament you get that. You know, you, you get the the dead Rephaim, who are descent, who are Anakim, who are descendants of the Nephilim, you get them living in the underworld. They live in the realm of the dead. They come out, they seek embodiment, they seek to possess people. Again, we, un- we understand that from the Gospels. But, but who is Lord of all of this? Okay, Who's Lord of the dead? Who's Lord of, 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 of the, the minions running around that, that run the place, that afflict people, okay, that bring destruction and plague and all this stuff? And of course, the Lord of the dead himself. Well, the answer is the Messiah. The answer is the Messiah. And so people who were familiar, again, with this literature, Psalm 91, the extra Psalm, Psalm 151. Again, the reference in extra Psalm material about, hey, you know, David had written songs, and suggestion, hint, maybe Psalm 91 is one of them. David had written Psalms to perform over the possessed, four of them. Remember that Dead Sea Scroll we read a few minutes ago? So if you're familiar with this material, when Jesus shows up, And starts casting out demons, starts giving his disciples power over demons. The theological messaging is quite clear. This is, again, this guy has to be the Messiah because only the Son of David, only the Messianic figure, only the Messianic king would have been authorized, would have been empowered to do this. And it, and and to do it for real, as, as you know, other than you know being a pretender, I mean, he he not only has the power, but he gives it. To, he dispenses it to his followers, to his disciples. And again, it's no coincidence that when Jesus does this stuff, the first time that he does this is he sends out the seventy. Okay, that, again, it, it's always done in conjunction with the launch, the kickstarting of the kingdom of God over against the kingdom of of, of Satan. Again, all of these things have to be taken together, collectively in context. They are part of the messianic profile that, is, that in and of itself is splintered, is scattered. And the pieces start coming together and converging into and around, you know, clustered you know, in connection with this figure, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, again, the theological messaging would not have been lost to someone again familiar with the with these these texts and and i 'm not saying they could quote them maybe i 'm sure a lot of them could, but even if they had heard them when Jesus starts doing this stuff the 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 bells and whistles are going to go you know going to start going off in their head, they would associate this with messiah now one passage yet to to mention about that that people would have conceivably had in their head at least by the time of the writing of the gospels would be something Josephus says. Josephus in his antiquities book. Uh, and again Josephus was a first century figure so again you would have had to you know the, the gospel readers and writers would may not have had this, but certainly Josephus is going to be sh- is, is actually sharing Jewish tradition you know with his readers. He doesn't just make this up when he decides to write something down. he writes this. Now the sagacity and wisdom which God had bestowed upon Solomon was great so great that he exceeded the ancients insomuch that he was no way inferior to the Egyptians. Again, he's drawing on that First Kings 4 passage that we read. Who are said to have been beyond all men in understanding. Okay, this is Antiquities 8.2.5. If you want the actual references, this is line 45 now. God also enabled him, Solomon, to learn that skill which expels demons, which is a science useful and sanative to men. He composed such... Incantations again, utterances, songs, you know this sort of thing you know stuff that you say or sing, he composed such incantations also by which distempers are alleviated, so he was a healer too, and he left behind him the manner of using exorcisms by which they drive away demons so that they may never return again this is part of of Jewish thinking, this was associated with Solomon. Again, because of some of the texts that we had read, you know, we read earlier in this episode. And by the time Jesus shows up, there's a body of tradition based upon, again, Qumran material, you know, Jewish material. This is is Hebrew Jewish material that, of course, gets translated into the Septuagint. And, you know, Psalm 91, the extra Psalm, Psalm 151, which is in the Septuagint, also helps create this body of thought, this body of tradition that associated the Son of David Okay, the son of Solomon, the Solomonic-Davidic line associated that Messianic figure with the, the casting out of demons. And this is why when Jesus starts doing this, nobody blinked an eye. Nobody said, hey, where, where's the Messiah supposed to be doing that? Chapter and verse, please. No, they don't say that. They, they again, have this, this expectation because of this material. And so that's why, uh, again, this part of the Messianic profile that we read in the Gospels that isn't very transparent in the Old Testament, why it's still a legitimate connection back into the Old Testament as part of you know, the, the, the Messianic figure, the Messianic profile.